0: Well, good morning. Uh, That was so well done. Thank you, Kim, for that. I am excited about Easter. Are you guys excited about Easter? Oh, one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I can't help when I think about Easter, but to think about many of the people here on Cape Cod who don't know Jesus. Do you ever, does your mind ever go there? My mind goes there quite a bit. Um, And I'm thinking about, as I'm thinking about people who don't know Jesus, how do we give them a message of hope like we just heard there? Church often feels like a house or a home or a family. Remember we were talking about that last week? How do you get people to come into your house? Do you just expect them to walk through the door? (laughs) Of course not. That's when you're pulling out your phone and dialing 911, right? You invite them. You encourage them to come. And I think um, with anyone who's come into church, they could probably link uh, coming to church with someone having communicated to them, you should come to church with me. So this uh, Easter, I want to encourage all of you to be an inviter. Be hospitable. Encourage people to come to church. We have these little invitations that um, we are going to be passing out this year. You should find them in your bulletin. Uh, The theme of Easter this year will be Beyond Sight. And I am planning to use the back of this and just look through my neighborhood and address these to particular people in the neighborhood and just invite them. To come to the place that feels like home to me on Easter. And I would encourage all of you to do something very similar to that. But I have to say this actually handing someone an invitation, now that's powerful, isn't it? Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help as we look at his word. Father, this morning, as we are looking once again at 1 Thessalonians, uh, we are grateful for the message of hope that we see in the scriptures. And this message of hope gives us, Lord, the, the goal ahead of ourselves to continue to walk faithfully in this world. I pray, God, that as we hear about hope, as our hearts have already been stirred by that reading from Kim, that they will continue to be stirred as your word is proclaimed this morning. We thank you for it, Lord, and we would be lost without it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I like this analogy from Tim Keller. He says this, Imagine that you have two women who are both the same age. They both come from the middle class. They both have the same education level. And friends observing them would say that they have the same type of personality. Now, you go up to these women and you give them the same exact job. Uh, you say to them something like this, you are a part of an assembly line and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand uh, what you have assembled on to someone else. You are going to do this every day for eight hours a day. That sounds appetizing, doesn't it? Don't everyone leave here at once to go get that job? It would be a little bit boring, wouldn't it? So we can think of to uh, their situation and say to ourselves, well, it seems like they're identical in every way the way that they're experiencing this job but there is one distinction that i haven't told you about yet you tell the first woman that at the end of the year she will be making $30,000 you say to the second woman at the end of the year you will be making 30 million dollars hmm and so the first woman after some weeks on the job starts to say isn't this tedious Isn't this just driving you insane? I think that I'm going to quit this job to go get another job. Well, the second woman is looking over at her and saying, Oh, no, absolutely not. This job is just fine. In fact, every day I come to work, I whistle while I work. Now, what is going on? What is the difference? You have two people. Experiencing the same job in radically different ways. I think it has something to do with their expectation of the future. I'm not telling you this illustration to tell you that if you made $30 million as opposed to 30000 that you would be happier in life. But I am saying that it helps to show that what we think about the future, what we believe about the future, controls how we experience the present. Tim Keller has said this, we are irreducibly hope-based creatures. And I can think of no message from the scriptures that is more hope-inducing than the doctrine of the future. It is called eschatology. The study of end times. Now I know when some of us hear about end times, we our minds go to different places. Some of us think to ourselves, Oh, here we go, the preacher's gonna start talking about some of that prophetic gobbledygook, a pre, a post, a mid, a, a post a partial rapture. Or he's going to get up here and show us some newspaper clips on who the Antichrist is. Other people, though, are waiting in rapture for the preacher to make those kind of claims. And that pun was definitely intended. Now, when it comes to these things, you have to just sit there and think to yourself, there we go with extremes again. I think both mindsets are unhelpful to us. Extremes often come not because we have good information or a lack of information, but because we have misinformation. Mark Twain once quipped, The trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but that they know so many things that just ain't so. It's true, isn't it? Paul didn't wish for the Thessalonians, nor would he want for us to know so many things that ain't so. So as he talks to us about Christ's return, he frames the message with hope. Because that's what it's really about. So if you would, Open your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, picking up at verse 13. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can open your Bibles to page 987. And as you're returning there, I want you to prepare your hearts to be filled with hope. That's what we're talking about this morning. Hope. It begins in verse 13 with the certainty of hope. Paul says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Remember, we were talking last week that Christianity is a shoe-leather faith. It has to do with the practical things to do with life. Christianity touches into every aspect of life, even the mundane things like what? Filling out tax returns. But it also has to do with the big questions in life, the types of questions that everyone is asking, like what Paul poses here this morning. Will I see my loved ones again? That's a big question. Now, how did the Thessalonians get here? We'll remember that Paul had only been with them for three Sabbaths. So that means he was with them for about three weeks and he had been instructing them on the things of the Christian faith. When he had been ejected out of Thessalonica, he would later then send Timothy back to the city to start instructing them further on the faith. Now, Timothy had come back from this trip And he told Paul that these Christians were asking a lot of hard questions. Why have some of the fellow believers in our congregation died? Wasn't Jesus supposed to return pretty quickly? And if he hasn't returned yet, and people have gone to the grave, what are we to do about that? And there was also these false teachers who were circulating a letter stating that the church was already living in the last times. And so they were confused. How does Paul address the concern? Look at verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed. Ignorance is not bliss, is it? How many times have we lived with burden simply because we didn't know all of the facts? I mean, it makes me think of one of the necessities in our life to make sure that we're informed on what the Bible actually says about things because the consequence of being biblically illiterate or not understanding what the Scriptures say is unnecessary confusion, worry, and frustration. And that's a big consequence. We live with these types of things all the time. And how much simpler would life be if we just knew? So, what were they ignorant about? Death, the great intruder, the king of terror, and the terror of kings. The fear of death troubles our lives like a hurricane sweeping over a serene harbor, notes Chuck Swindoll. And anchored in the shallows, our little boats of faith are easily dashed against the rocks by fierce fury. But Paul says to them, If you knew the truth of God's word, you wouldn't grieve like the world grieves. I want you to think about that with me for a moment. Is grief a bad thing? Absolutely not. Paul's not sitting here telling us this morning that it's wrong to grieve. In fact, we would say that grief is a natural process of life. But he's also saying to them, look, don't, uh, or he's saying to them, don't be like cold and theological about it. We can tend to do that. We can tend to be emotionless vacuums. But on the other end of the spectrum, he's saying don't have a hopeless grief. Don't be like those who sit before the grave and wonder what is happening with this person and thinking that this will be the last time that you would ever see them again. You see, that is the type of grief that the world struggles with but not the type of grief that a believer should have. Paul says that Christians are asleep. Do you notice that three times in the passage, verse 13, 14, 15? It's a euphemism for death. He's not saying that they're asleep because he doesn't like to drop the D word. You know how we kind of cringe sometimes when people say death? A lot of people don't like to talk about death. Some people even live their lives as if they don't believe death is going to happen. I've heard it said that America is the only country in the world where people believe that death is an option. It's not an option. But that is not what Paul is doing here. He's not avoiding the topic of death. He is saying that death has lost its sting. Sleep is never final. It's always temporary. When a person goes to sleep at night, you anticipate that they are going to wake up in the morning. That is the Christian understanding of death. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about what happens when we die. It talks about the body going to the grave. It talks about the soul, on the other hand, doing something quite different. You see, some people believe that when a person dies, that the soul ceases to exist or that the soul ceases to be conscious. But the Bible never talks about death in that way. For the believer or the person who has not trusted Jesus, we will be very conscious of what happens to us after death. See, the person who has not trusted Jesus, the body says, uh, the Bible says that the body goes into the grave And that the soul goes immediately to hell. And it's, when you think of hell, and there's another word we don't like to talk about, it is one of the more terror-inducing thoughts in my mind. An eternity in a state that is devoid of God and God's goodness. And all the suffering that would come along with that sort of life. When you think about your life, coming to terms with who Jesus is, what his claims are, and whether or not he is the salvation for your soul is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. It's more important than the decision of who you will marry. It's more important than the decision of what job you will have. It's more important than salting away money for retirement. This is the type of a decision that is eternal in consequence. And so if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, do so now. He is God's solution for your ultimate problem. Now, the believer, quite differently, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 8 that your body goes to the grave, but then your soul is immediately with the Lord. The King James Version says it like this absent from the body, present with the Lord the body will then be reunited with the soul when Jesus returns in a glorified state, in a body that no longer gets old. No more creaks, no more joint aches, no more back pain, no more cancer, no more sickness, but eternal in its composition and structure. And if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. You see, the Christian life is built on hope. And while the world hopes for the best, the Christian has the best sort of hope. Hope is a big deal. No one in this world should go one second of one day without hope. I like these words on hope. Hope is that intangible fuel that moves the human spirit along when life appears untenable. When marriages fail, when sickness invades, or when our financial future collapses, we anticipate, we hope, that somehow conditions will improve. We hope that tomorrow will be brighter. We hope that the future will be different than the present. Hope enables us to face whatever difficulties come our way no matter what. Now, we tend to talk of hope in its lesser form. Oh, I hope that Susan will go out with me. And guys, we just call that a dream. That's not even hope. Or I hope that I get that job. Or I hope the commute will be smooth today as I'm going into work. Ordinarily, when we use the word hope, we're speaking in terms of uncertainty rather than in terms of certainty. And this is not how the Bible talks about hope. In the Bible, hope is not a desire for something good in the future. It is a confident expectation and a desire for something good in the future. So biblical hope doesn't wish for something good to happen. It, it, it expects it to happen. That is what kind of hope we're talking about here. But you ask yourself, well, what on what basis can I expect this type of hope? I mean, how can I know that Jesus is coming again and that I will be resurrected with him? That's a really good question. I'm really glad you asked it. The basis of our hope, look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want you to hear this phrase. Our hope for the future is grounded in the certainty of the past. Hope is based on Jesus died and rose again. That's the irreducible core of the gospel. It's a gospel that is historical and verifiable. It's not some whimsical pipe dream that someone uh, drummed up somewhere that is not connecting with reality. It's not some vision that happened in some lone individual's mind. Real life events that happened, that people have documented, that people witnessed, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And if you were to continue reading that passage, then Paul would submit to you eyewitness accounts of people who saw these things occur. So, why are these two points so important? Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Let's think about Jesus died first. Leon Morris makes this profound point It is significant that Paul does not speak of Jesus as sleeping, but says he died. Christ endured the full horror of that death that is the wages of sin and thus transformed death for his followers into sleep. In the New Testament, Christians are never said to die. They fall asleep. But in Christ, or Christ is not said to fall asleep. He is said to die. By dying in our place as a once for all atonement for all of our sins for all time, past, present, future, we can have absolute confidence that nothing stands between us and God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Romans chapter 8. And by filling all, fulfilling all the necessary requirements or conditions of God's holy standards for us, Jesus did that. He has turned death into sleep. Jesus rose again. So Paul reasons the gospel this way. The death of Jesus is essential. The resurrection of Jesus is imperative. A Jesus who is still in the grave does not provide much hope. But a risen Jesus? Now you have that word hope stamped into granite. That is the currency of the economy of hope. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and verified it through his resurrection. Our hope for the future is grounded in the certainty of the past. Now Paul connects from the past forward in verse 15. Listen to what he says. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice that phrase there, a word from the Lord. It's most likely Paul talking about some additional revelation that he received from Christ to talk about future events that would be to come. And I want you to notice some of the specifics of this glorious future in verses 16 and 17 with me. He says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So if you're interested in biblical prophecy and the end times, Paul describes four major events that will take place in the future. He speaks of a return, a resurrection, a rapture, and a reunion. So let's look at each one of these. Let's begin with return. Verse 16, the first part, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. You know what I appreciate when I read this verse? The emphasis in the Greek. It says Jesus himself. He's not sending some stand-in delegate. He's not sending one of those Old Testament figures like Moses or Elijah. He's not sending some third party to come in return. It says Jesus himself is coming again. His return will be personal, visible, triumphant, and glorious. And this is without question in the Bible. You know, in the Bible, it talks about Jesus' return all the time. If you look in the New Testament, 23 out of the 27 books in the New Testament talk about Jesus' return. If you were to look through the New Testament and balance all the times that it's talked about, one in every 30 verses would either talk about Jesus' return or the events that surround the return of Christ. For every one time that the birth of Jesus is mentioned in the Bible, the return of Jesus is mentioned eight It's a big deal. The angels said to the disciples in Acts one eleven, this same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now that is hopeful. This same Jesus. This same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem who grew up in Nazareth, who walked the dusty streets of Galilee proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven has come, this same Jesus who cured the sick, raised the dead, calmed the storm, this same Jesus who was betrayed, tried, denied, crucified, buried, This same Jesus who rose again from the dead and walked amongst the disciples for 40 days and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is the Jesus who is returning. Paul says he will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. The Jesus who was mocked on the cross called the king of the Jews will suddenly appear king of kings and lord of lords now suddenly the bible doesn't talk about advanced notice there will not be a voice from the sky attention world three years from now Jesus will be returning get your life in order And when this king of kings and lord of lords returns, we will either be ready or we won't. Resurrection, look at verse 16, the second part. The dead in Christ will rise first. So with this very sudden and dramatic entrance, Jesus will call his people to attention, including those who are in the grave. I love this quote from Dennis Bennett. The Lord Jesus is the world's worst funeral director, for he broke up every funeral he ever intended, including his own. He broke up the funeral of Lazarus, the widow's son, Jairus' daughter, his own, and he's going to break up the funeral of every single Christian who has ever died in Christ. We need to hang on to that word there, that phrase, in Christ. Christ. This resurrection is only for those who have trusted Jesus is Lord and Savior. The Bible talks about two resurrections. The first will be here. The second will be after a thousand years when Christ has physically ruled on the earth. And that resurrection is called the Great White Throne Judgment. A much different sort of resurrection. At this first resurrection, all believers will be raised. This includes those who first died for Christ's name, like Stephen. It includes the disciples who went on to die for Christ's name, like James, like Peter. People who have died 1,500 years ago, 500 years ago, 100 years ago, last year, last week. People who die today who have trusted Jesus. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise the believer from the dead, who has died before his return. And he will be raising people in all different types of circumstances. Those who have died in the sea, those who have been cremated, the soldier who died in the battlefield, the person whose body withered away with cancer. They will see that they will be clothed immortal. This will be a resurrection that is whole, healthy, where they will be put to their right mind. And if it doesn't get more exciting than that, y'all, come on. I mean, that is good stuff. I had a friend that got so excited about Jesus' return that he once said, Look, if I die before Jesus returns, I want you to bury me under a slab uh, six feet thick of concrete so that when he calls me to attention, I will just blast through that thing like Superman. Now that, my friends, is a confident expectation. But what about those who are still alive when Jesus returns? Rapture. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There are two figures in the Bible who you may have read about. There's Enoch and there's Elijah. Enoch in Genesis, Elijah in 2 Kings, who never tasted death. And like these two figures, there will be a generation of Christians who will never taste death. That is an awesome thought. The phrase caught up comes from the Greek word harpazo, which means to seize or grab suddenly. So when the New Testament translators were translating the Greek into the Latin, they translated harpazo into the word rapturo, and that's where we get our word rapture. So, what is this rapture? What will it be like? Well, here we see that Paul talks about believers meeting Christ in the clouds. There's also another reference to the rapture in. Uh, First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, and other places as well. But this one's particularly good. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now that word, moment, We get our word in English today, atom, from it. There was a time when people believed that the atom was the smallest or most irreducible part of matter. We have subsequently found out that you can split an atom. But having said that, in their mind, when Paul was writing, the rapture is going to take the most infinitesimal amount of time possible to occur in the uh, the phrase "a uh, twinkling of an eye," uh, that is the idea of the amount of time that it takes your eye to capture light, which is qu- quicker than blinking. Just with me for a moment here. You ready? I want you to just blink. Just blink. Now, capture the amount of time that that took. The rapture will be quicker than that, by a lot. Isn't that crazy? Now, we come to the area where good Christians think differently. When will the rapture happen? Now, before we talk about this, I think it's important to say that I believe that good fellowship, friendship, and yes, even membership in a church can happen when people have different views on the rapture. Okay? Can we get that out there right now? I think that's important to say. There's five dominant views on when the rapture will occur. I think three of them are stronger than the others. There's the pre, the mid, the post rapture view. It all has to do with how the rapture lines up with the tribulation. Now, if you've never heard that word tribulation before, it has to do with the seven-year period at the end of time when God will pour out his wrath upon the earth So I think that the two strongest positions have to do with the bookends of the uh, Tribulation, the pre-Tribulation or the post-Tribulation. But as I've looked at the uh, evidence of them, I have decided upon one position that I hold more firmly than the other, and that's the pre-Tribulation rapture position. Now why is that? Well, when I was a young lad, my dad told me that if you believe in any one of these positions, you will be raptured in accordance with your belief. (laughs) And that put the fear of God into me. Not quite like that. No, as I have uh, looked at the scriptures, I think there's a couple of things that have lended itself towards me holding to a pre-tribulation view. The first is the idea of eminence. When Christ's return is talked about in the scriptures, it's this idea that it could happen at any time. That I wouldn't have to wait through a seven-year period that is kind of like clockwork happening. The second um, is the idea of the tribulation having to do with God's wrath. If you look at a couple of places here in 1 Thessalonians, it actually talks about the church being withheld from the wrath of God. So those two things and other things help me to land on that position. Now, once again, we can still have a good fellowship in Jesus. We can love people. We can serve God together. And we can always choose the better part, which is to love one another. But don't take that to say that I shouldn't have a position either. It's good to have theological positions. It's good to think theologically. Let's talk about reunion, verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Jesus' return is going to be the best family reunion that you can ever imagine. Now some of you are just trying to imagine a good family reunion. And I get that. But, you know, get Uncle Bill out of your mind, or if Uncle Bill's a Christian, he's going to be glorified at this point. And this is going to be the type of family reunion, y'all, that you want to be at. It is going to be glorious. It's not going to get better than this. And look at that word, always. Always. For all of eternity, we will be with... Uh, Christ. This is the type of thought that gives you goosebumps when you think about it, if you really believe it. It's the type of thought that makes the small things in life look even smaller when you think about it. This is hope producing. Jesus is coming again, which moves us to the main point of the passage, verse 18, the infectiousness of our hope. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul didn't write these words so that you could fill out your end times charts and get the sequence right. He didn't fill out these words thinking to himself, you know, within this passage I'm going to leave some hidden clues that smart people can find out just when Jesus is going to return. He didn't do this so that we would argue with one another about the end times. What does it say here? so that we might encourage one another. It's a message about hope. Jesus is coming again. And it's always there around us. Have you noticed how beautiful this cape is lately? Some of you are like, it's spring and it's been snowing and... It's not beautiful at all. It is beautiful. We are fortunate and blessed to live in one of the most beautiful regions, in my opinion, in the country. Nature trails, trees surrounding our homes, beautiful architecture. But best of all is the Atlantic Ocean, which surrounds us. It is big, blue, And beautiful, isn't it? But you ever notice how if you're not being intentional with what we have, that you can sometimes go through life and miss it? I've found myself at times going sometimes days, weeks, dare I say months, without taking in the beauty of the Atlantic Ocean. Jesus made a promise to you and me. He told us that he would come back. And when he does, that he is taking you to live with him forever. This is that promise that is vast like the ocean. It surrounds us. As you read through the scriptures, if you're keeping your eyes open, it is there. It is present. But how often do we fail to look? It's no wonder that we struggle with the small things. It's no wonder we find ourselves asking questions like, is the Christian life worth it? Or is there a better way that I could be occupying my time than worshiping with God's people? And when you ignore the promise, that's what you can expect. But when you look out and take it in, what hope What glory that Jesus is coming back for his church? Suddenly, you have immense hope while you are waiting. Let's pray.